This is The Weekly for May 24th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. In December 1944, Adolf Hitler attempted to split the Allied armies in Northwest Europe with a surprise blitzkrieg through Belgium. Caught off guard, American units fought desperate battles to stem the German advance. Harry Miller was there as a crewman in the Army's 740th Tank Battalion. He enlisted at the age of 15, lying about his age in order to join active duty. As we pay tribute this Memorial Day weekend to those who have paid the ultimate price, he talks about what he saw, what he experienced in fighting what was one of the deadliest and most desperate clashes of the war, the Battle of the Bulge. But first, here's how the War Department described the battle's beginning from a 1944 newsreel. Remember this? This was France, August 1944. It was a kind of honeymoon for the American army and the American people. Remember at home we were worrying about reconverting war plants to civilian production. Remember we were worrying that we would be left with too many shells and too many tanks when the war ended? Remember we were looking around for a job in some civilian industry so we wouldn't get caught short when the need for machine guns and bandages was suddenly over? Well, the honeymoon ended. Let's begin with your story. How and why did you sign up to serve during World War II? Well, what happened was my mother died when I was three. My dad died when I was 15. And, of course, the Deep Depression was on. And I always wanted to be a soldier. Most of my friends wanted to be firemen or cowboys or something, policemen. And I always wanted to be a soldier. I think the reason being was there's a small army camp in my hometown. And every time they had a parade, I would see them, and I always wanted to be with them. And so a friend of mine, a neighbor man, he found out that I was really interested in going in the Army, especially since all my friends had gone in. And he said, I, I heard that the, Air, the Army's going to have a new problem, a new, new, new yeah, problem, all right, <laughs> had a new program. And uh, he told me to go down and talk to him about it. So I did. It was called, uh, I believe it was called Enlisted Reserve Corps, as I recall. Anyway, it was for kids that were like 17, 17 and a half, to get them interested in going in the Army rather than the, Air, uh, the uh, Navy or the Marines. They had their own program. I didn't want any part of that anyway. So uh, I went down and asked them if I could join, and they said, sure, but you have to get a birth certificate. So I, had, I went to the county to get a birth certificate. And in those days, they used to have a big uh, book that they wrote information in on births. And they couldn't find a birth certificate for me. So I went back and I told them, I said, hey, they don't have a birth certificate for me. He said, well, no problem. He says, we can take you anyway. And I said, okay. You know, at that time, 1944, they were ang anxious to get all the men they could get. So they took me in. And after I got in, I found out that you could apply for active duty. And so I did. I applied for active duty, and they took me. And again, you were 15 or 16 years old? I was 15 old? still. And they, I went to basic training at uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, as a tank crewman. And uh, after I got through basic training, well, they sent me out to Fort Ord, California, into a uh, uh, amphibious tank battalion. Or am I getting off the rack here? What you want? Okay, uh, sent me. You're to doing this, great. Okay, they they sent me to this amphibious tank battalion, 
and uh, I've got in line to get all my shots, and my gosh, I was getting shots for elephantitis and uh, I, I, every kind of thing I never heard of before, sleeping sickness. And uh, I got through all these shots, and somebody called my name, and they said, don't go see so-and-so. So I went to see him, and he said, don't unpack, you're, you're leaving. I said, okay. So next day, we took a bunch of these uh, amphibious tanks, which were called LVTs, or landing vehicle track. Marines called them amph tracks. Of course, they always had to have something different, you know. And so uh, we took these amph these LVTs to uh, uh, train station and put them on flat cars. Took it to uh, took them to Brooklyn Army Port and put them on. They put them on the ships. Took them over to France. Well, we got over to. Uh, La Havre, La Havre, France, and uh, put them back on flat cars for the trains to take up to Antwerp, Belgium. So we got them up there, and the reason they took them up, I found out later, was because when General Montgomery, the British general, uh, wanted to go up into Holland, you know the story about the bridge too far, well, Eisenhower told him, he says, I'll let you do this, but I want you to clear that harbor so that we can get supplies into Antwerp. So he said, well, yeah, I'll clear it, but I need some of these tanks. So I said, okay, I'll get them for you. And that's sort of how we got involved. And again, this is 1944. Yeah, so right. the D-Day invasion was underway yeah. and Allied troops moving through Europe, heading towards Germany. Yeah, right. And so this was like September, I'm going to say. And so anyway, we got uh, those up to Antwerp. And uh, later on, the British finally opened up that port. And then they transferred us to the uh, replacement depot, what they called REPL depots at that time. There were three of them at uh, La Havre. They named them after cigarettes. Cigarettes were money at those days, by the way. We had Philip Morris, Old Gold, and Lucky Strike uh, camps. They were just tent camps. So I went to Old Gold, and I was reassigned to the 740th Tank Battalion. I got there uh, uh, October, end of October, 44, and uh, assigned to the 740th Tank Battalion in the town of Neufchateau, which is not far from uh, Liège. And uh, when I got there, didn't know a thing about the outfit that I was going to, but I found a lot about it. They were a group of guys that had been drafted from Texas and Oklahoma. and. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Texas and Oklahoma, but there's a lot of friction between the two because of the football thing. Well, it was even worse in those days. Uh, one guy would ask the other one, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Oklahoma. Oh, yeah, well, Oklahoma's no good. Oh, yeah, well, I'm from Texas. And here we get into a fist fight. So here I am, 15, 16 years old. I had to keep my nose clear and clean and stay out of trouble. So what I did was uh, just... Stayed in the background. Whenever I saw trouble brewing, I got out, got away, and got away from it so I wouldn't be involved. I didn't want to get caught with the whole thing. So anyway, uh, we were uh, patrolling the town of Neufchateau and uh, keeping the people in off the streets uh, during the curfew. Curfew started about 7 o'clock over there because it got dark early not far north. And there was a, a lady walking down the road, and this one guy in the jeep, he stopped. And he said, "Hey, he says you have to, you have to go in, in, in back to your home. The curfew's on." She said, "I'm sorry, I have to go to the hospital." He says, "No, you have to go home." 
And she says, I have to go to the hospital. She opens up her coat, and she's very pregnant, of course. So he says, well, hop in, and I'll take you to the hospital. So I don't think she hopped in because I guess he was ready. So he got her to the hospital, and on the way, she asked him what his name was. And uh, he told her, and, uh, well, 40 years later, we had we went over and put a monument up in that town and I was the master of ceremonies because I was the uh, secretary of the unit at that time. So uh, this lady stopped me and she says, Mr. So-and-so here with you? And I said, yeah, he's here. She said, I'd like to talk to him. So I said, well, you wait there. I'll go get him. So I got this guy and I said, hey, there's a lady out here. Let's talk to you. He said, a lady? Who is she? I don't know any ladies. I, well, I don't know what about your your choice, but I said, she is a lady from Belgium. I don't know any Belgian women. I said, well, she knows you. So I took him to her and uh, introduced her to him. Come find out, uh, she introduced her, him to her son. And she said his name is like John Doe, the same as this guy's name was, only with the Belgian family name. And so this guy just about fainted. Oh, my. He, and I thought, oh, thank God his wife wasn't with him because he'd never explained that, you know. <laughs> But anyway, the war started on the 16th of December. Not not the war, but the Battle of the Bulge started on the 16th of December. We had no tanks. They had had to turn them in in England when they came to France with the idea they'd pick up new tanks in France. Well, got to France, and nobody knew anything about tanks, so they said, go on up to the First Army, and they'll give you what you need. That's how we got up to that, that area. So then when the Battle of the Bulge started, we still had no tanks. So the 1st Army got a hold of our battalion commander and said, go down to these ordnance depots and pick up anything you want. Well, of course, everything in the ordnance depots were, were junk. They had, they had tanks that had been knocked out, and uh, people had gone in there and taken radios out and uh, rammer staffs for the main gun and even gun sights. They had taken those off the main gun. Uh, we had a low. We had to pa patch up holes in the tank where artillery rounds had gone into them. So we finally got three tanks, two tanks and a and a tank destroyer. A tank destroyer is the same as a tank at that time, except that it had an open top turret and it had a bigger gun. It had a 90 millimeter gun where regular tanks had a 75 or a 76 millimeter. So anyway, they sent them down to the 30th Infantry Division that was holding the road down on, in the town of Stumont by the train station there. And so there was a big sweeping curve that came onto this road going to the train station. Infantry was all along the road. And uh, the lead tank came around the corner very slowly because you never just crashed on around a corner in a tank. You never knew what was on the other end. So he went around very slowly, came face to face with the lead tank of the 1st SS Panzer Division, which was the Adolf Hitler Panzer Division. His and they were tough. Outfit, yeah. And they were known for their treachery in Russia. So, anyway, the first tank saw him and he fired and he knocked him out. And he started to reload and the round got stuck in the gun. Well, he motioned for the second tank to come around. The second tank came around. He ran in face-to-face -to, -face to the second German tank. He knocked that one out. The third was the tank destroyer. When he came around, he saw the third uh, German tank, and he fired three rounds real quick. Now, let me tell you, our gunners were very good. They had had a lot of training, and they were excellent gunners. We didn't even have gun sights on these three tanks. 
they didn't even get a chance to bore sight them, so they were taking a chance. Well, as it happened, that stopped the first SS Panzer, and they turned around and left. Well, later on, they came into town from a different direction. We had to stop them again. And that was at a, uh, a town, in the, in the town of Stumont, there was a uh, small hospital there called St. Edward uh, Hospital of some kind. I've forgotten now what the word was. Anyway, the 30th Division had some people in there that were stuck in there and couldn't get out. The Germans had a Panther tank sitting at the end of the building, and every time these GIs would try to get out of the rooms where they were, they'd fire around down through this hallway <laughs> and uh, scare the devil out of them. So they had to stay put. Well, we tried to get up to where they where the tank was so we could knock it out, but couldn't get up there because it was up on a hill. It was slippery. It was muddy, you know, that time of the year. And so we had to wait till darkness, and we built a corduroy road going up the hill so that our tanks could get some traction. Well, by the time the sun came up, while well, we had the road all done, and we snuck on up there and knocked out that tank. They, they didn't know we were coming up, and knocked that tank out and, and freed these GIs so that they could get out of there. Well, then after we got the building secured, we found out that down in the basement there was a Catholic priest there, a Belgian, and he had somewhere between 50 and 100 people down there that he was trying to keep quiet so that the Germans wouldn't come down and get them because the Germans would have killed them. Uh, I mean, that they were known for doing that. And so they were very thankful that we, we had freed them. And meanwhile, uh, I was in the assault gun platoon of headquarters company. And so our battalion commander had set up all our, our, our six assault guns and it was just a Sherman tank with a bigger gun on it. It was a Sherman tank with a 105 instead of a 75 or 76 millimeter gun. And uh, so he directed a fire from the veranda of the chateau there in the town of Stumont. And we fired onto the town of Laglise, which is about three miles away and destroyed the town. I mean, we flattened this sucker all the way, and the first thing we hit was the uh, church steeple because that's where the Germans always put their their uh, snipers and their uh, artillery forward observers. And having been there, there are markers indicating where all of this occurred. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so anyway, we finally drove them out of, out of La Glaze, and then uh, the Christmas came up about that time, and the 82nd Airborne had come up from France, they had gone after the bridge too far fiasco. They were sent to France, and uh, they were re refitting them there and getting giving them new equipment and new clothes and what have you. Well, they weren't finished getting refitted uh, when they had to come up to the bulge. So a lot of them came up with no overcoat, uh, no no Some of them didn't even have weapons. So they got up there and they took their positions and we we were free to go with them because the 30th Division had their regular tank battalion that came up. So we were sent for the 82nd Airborne, best thing that ever could have happened because they were a bunch of great guys and still are one of the best outfits in the Army. It is the best outfit in the Army as far as I'm concerned. So we stayed with them through the rest of the bulge and then... Uh, after the bulge, we had the uh, big fight at the uh, Siegfried line, and the, the 82nd people told us that the Siegfried line battle was the hardest battle they were ever in. And uh, hearing that from people who went from North Africa to Sicily to Italy to France to Belgium, uh, we thought that was a pretty good compliment. 
under cloudy skies and close hanging ground mists that defied aerial observation, the very much alive German army gathered its forces in the forest aisles to strike one strong, decisive blow at the American army. New and refitted divisions were brought up under cover of fog, darkness, and forest. The fury of robot and rocket weapons was unleashed against our front. Let me remind our listeners that we're talking with Harry Miller, a World War II veteran. He was 15 when he signed up. He also served in the Korean conflict and the Vietnam War. I want to ask you, at such a young age, were you ever scared? Oh, gosh, yeah. Everybody was scared. Uh, I mean, if, if they weren't scared, they were lying. So what was going through your mind? Death, really. Yeah, I, uh, I promised my sister that I'd come back. And I was going to do it uh, one way or the other, but uh, no. Every if you know if a person's not scared, they're in, they're they're crazy, because when you stop to think about it, everybody that you're facing has a weapon, and they don't mind shooting you. And the German SS, they not only did they not mind shooting you, they didn't mind shooting civilians just alongside the road. They well, they had the Malmedy massacre. You might have heard of that when they killed over something like 94 GIs that had surrendered. And uh, I remember seeing a, a group of, of Belgians alongside the road that apparently they were just out watching the Germans drive through and the Germans just hosed them down and killed the whole bunch right there. And they were good at that. I mean, they that's what they learned in Russia. They just killed all civilians because they in Russia, a lot of them were uh, partisans. So they had they took no chances, and uh, after we heard about Malmedy, we took no chances either, and that that was our big mistake because uh, there was a different attitude from then on. From then on, the SS did not get away with anything. I think anybody that was involved in the World War II, especially with the SS, they all felt the same way. The SS just so they were just a bunch of mean guys. I don't know whether it was. They're trying to prove something to each other or whether they were just, I don't know, crazy. I don't know what, I, I don't know how to describe it. So you lied about your age to get into the Army. Mm-hmm. Don't lie now. How old are you? I'll be 91 in the 2nd of July. I'm 90 right now. And your storytelling in recollection is remarkable. Well, I was the secretary for our group for so long, and any anything that I wasn't sure of, I talked to guys uh, while they were still alive, and uh, cleared up a lot of the things I remembered, but I w- didn't have dates down, right, or times or places. And so I got them squared away in my mind, and uh, was, I was a historian for us, so I had to keep all this stuff together. And uh, that, that's the reason I guess I remember it, because I don't want to forget about it. I don't want people to forget about it. Uh, I, I go to schools and talk this Holly can tell you about this. Uh, I go to some of the schools and talk to kids, and I find out that the kids don't know anything about World War II. Uh, They know very little about patriotism and nationalism. Uh, I guess just the other day, I was down at the monument, the World War II monument, and uh, I I was talking to some kids, and and they asked me about this poppy. They said, well, what is that? Uh, what's that flower? I said, don't you know what that flower is? Oh, no, I don't know what it is. That's a poppy. 
a poppy? What's a poppy? And I had to go through and explain about how it got started and Flanders Fields and all that and how we had to learn that poem when we were kids. And uh, it, it, it's just amazing. The kids don't know what, what has happened. But you go over to Belgium, and I love this. You go to Belgium, and you talk to kids no higher than this table. And they'll thank you, put their hand out, thank you for my liberation. Thank you for my freedom. What is remarkable, and this is a, a personal note, because my dad served in World War II. He was part of the initial wave during the D-Day invasion, but he never wanted to talk about it. And we hear that so often from World War II veterans. Yeah. Why? I, I have a theory. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist by any means of imagination, but I, I have a theory on it. I think the reason a lot of the guys didn't talk about it was because they had kids that they had trying to raise properly, trying to make them good citizens. Uh, I think they just didn't want their, their kids to know that their father had to do some of the things that they had to do. Nobody enjoyed doing these things. Uh, I, I give you a classic example. I can only speak for the tanks, but uh, you're riding down a, a street in a Belgian town or a European town, and the streets are all narrow, and there might be somebody laying in the middle of the street. You don't know whether they're alive, wounded, dead, or what, or just sleeping. I've seen people sleeping in the middle of the road. Generally, people will pull them out of the way, but you, you see them and you're rushing. You're trying to get to the next town to, so, to keep from getting your own people killed. You run over them. And uh, that's not something you want to tell your kids, that you, you had to run over people. Because if you were up in the turret, and you turned around to look, you never do it a second time. Fortunately, if you're in the front of the tank, the driver or the bow gunner position, you can't see it after you run over them. But you figure 34 tons of steel going over a body, there's not much left there to bury, you know? And so you don't want to tell your kids about something like this because they don't want their kids to think that their father had to do this kind of stuff. And there's other cases, too, where, where, you know, you walk up, uh, the SS would shoot till they ran out of ammunition, then they'd throw up their hands. Well, by that time, you've lost how many friends that they've shot and killed, and then you come up to them and they throw up their hands. What are you supposed to do? They'll say, oh, it's okay, and take them prisoner. It, it just, it happened, but not often. So war really is hell. It is. It, yeah, Sherman was right. He, he, he was right when he said, boys, it, it's, it's all hell. Do you consider yourself part of the greatest generation? I do. I do. And I think what made it a great generation because we went through that depression first. And I can tell you about the depression. My dad lost his job right off. He was an adding machine and, and a typewriter repairman. He was worked for Burroughs Adding Machines, which used to be a famous company. I don't know whether it still is or not. He lost his, uh, his job, and I remember he had a loan out with a loan company. And, of course, when he lost his job, he couldn't make the payments. I came home from school one day, and all everything we owned was sitting out on the, on the sidewalk, including all my toys and everything I had. And I remember what we had on was what we had, and that was it. This happened to us twice. And uh, it was not as easy to get onto uh, what 
what they call welfare today, they called relief in those days. And here was a man without a wife, because she had died, and he had six kids, well, five kids, because one of my sisters was hit by a car just before I was born. And so he had five kids to take care of, plus himself. And uh, I mean, it was tough. We, it was many days when we have a, had maybe a can of beans for three or four of us, and, and uh, we're lucky to get that. And people were friendly in those days. If people lived next door to you and knew you were having a hard time, they would bring food over to you or, or clothes from their kids or anything, you know. And that nowadays you don't see or hear about that. Harry Miller, VE Day, May 1945. Where were you? What do you remember? On VE Day, we, we had just headed up. Uh, we went across the El- Elba River. The Elba River was the demarcation line between the Russians and the British and the Americans. We weren't supposed to go across the Elba, and they weren't supposed to cross it either. So we were sent up. We were at Dusseldorf, Germany at the time. They sent us up to the town of Blackita on the Elba, and they told us that we're going to cross there and then go north. Well, they had to build a bridge, and while they were building the bridge, I can remember General Matthew uh, Ridgway uh, was out screaming and hollering, getting that bridge built, let's go, let's get it done. And meanwhile, the Germans are shelling us on the other side of the river. And, of course, we're shelling them back. So anyway, we finally got they, they finally got the bridge built, and we went across with the 82nd Airborne again and the 8th Division. And uh, as soon as we got across, we turned north, headed to, heading toward the Baltic, Baltic Sea. And uh, we went a long way, and a funny thing happened, if you've don't mind me telling you about this. Please do. We, we got a new tank commander in, in from another outfit. I think he had been in the hospital, and they sent him to our outfit. So he said, well, he's, he's the uh, spearhead. The spearhead is the lead tank going down the road with the infantry following him to, to support him. So at this time, the Germans were surrendering en masse uh, or... If you ran across the SS, they'd shoot until all their bullets were gone, and then they'd stick their hands up, and then they'd surrender. But they were trying to get away from the Russians, is what they were doing. So we were heading north, and this tank commander, he radioed back to the battalion commander. He says, hey, he said, who's supposed to be spearheading? Battalion commander says, you are, why? He says, well, he says, thought, thought I was, but he says, there's a bunch of these infantrymen that are riding ahead of me on, on horses and bicycles and even a, a horse and wagon. And the battalion commander said, oh, that's those crazy 82nd Airborne guys. He said, they'll do anything. Just keep going. <laughs> and they were a bunch of great guys. Anyway, we kept going north, and finally the 82nd dropped off and went to the uh, east to a, at a town called Ludwigslust, where the uh, concentration camp Wobelin was located. And they freed the, the people at Wobelin. We kept going north with the 8th Division at that time. And uh, this was like the last week of the war. We got up to, oh, we were going by several German airfields, and uh, we got had a big contest of who could knock out the German airplanes. So each tanker was made, made sure he was going to be the winner of this contest. Well, it was, wasn't really a written contest, but it was just a, a friendly thing. So they'd, each one would pick out an airplane and shoot at it and see if they could knock it out. We knocked out a total of 209 airplanes in the whole time we were over there. 
some on the air, in the air, some on the ground. And it became a game to see as they're taking off if they could shoot them as they got up, wheels up, and then they'd shoot them and knock them down. So that went on. So then we got up to the town of um, Schwerin, which is on the Baltic, and it's about uh, three, four miles from Wismar, which is right on the Baltic. And that's where we were when we found out that the war had ended. We never could figure out why they sent us up there until, oh gosh, about 20 years later, we figured out, somebody figured it out or found out that they sent us up there to help the British, who normally didn't need help, but we were sent up there to help them to block the Russians because the Russians were coming across along the, the uh, Baltic uh, coast there. But they were an ally. Yeah, tell them. <laughs> That's what they said. Yeah, and uh, but that was a block them to take from taking Denmark, and we we didn't know that until long after the war. Yes, they were our ally, but uh, I can tell you during the occupation, immediately after the war, they were shooting at us when we tried to get up to our guard post on the on the border between the, the Russian zone and the American zone. They were bad guys. I mean. Well, I can understand it because, you know, the Germans, when they went into Russia, they tore it up. They, uh, the, the Germans got everything they deserved from the Russians, and they were plenty scared of them, too, when they found out the Russians were coming through. Really some remarkable firsthand accounts. And I wonder, in concluding our conversation, which has been fascinating, what are the lessons from World War II? What can we take away from the blood the horror, uh, the awful circumstances across Europe and across Japan? Well, I hope we can not have any more wars, but of course, since then, we've had at least three or four. And you've been involved in Korea and Vietnam? Korea and Vietnam, yeah. And uh, I, I just I just hope that they'll, uh, how, how they're going to get along, I don't know, and how they're going to work it out, I don't know. But every day in the news, you hear about I don't know, North Korea shooting a missile and, and the Chinese doing this or somebody else doing that. And you wonder just why, why don't these people just stop this craziness and settle down? And Isn't it funny when you walk down the street and you stop somebody and ask directions or something and they've got an accent, you say, well, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Iran or I'm from wherever. And you think, gee, we get along nice person to person. Why don't the countries do this, you know? And that, that's the thing you, you just can't figure out. You just get sick of it, you know, just sick of it. What will you do on Memorial Day? I'll be over at the World War II Monument, as I always am. And uh, I would, I, I, I've told Holly over there, I said, you know, if I could put up a tent over here, I'd sleep out here. I just love that World War II Monument. Uh, I was there on the dedication there were seats all the way from the monument up to the Washington Monument, and my wife and I got out in the aisles. We danced to the music they were playing, and we just had a ball. We loved it. And, uh, oh, I'd, I'd love the place. I'd, I'd go down there, and I enjoy talking to people and the kids, asking questions. And uh, it, it's just it's fabulous as far as I'm concerned. Harry Miller, part of the greatest generation, a veteran of World War II, Thank you for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio studios. You bet. It's my pleasure. Believe me. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app, all of our programming at cspan.org. 
We thank you for listening.